You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for April 2007. This episode is entitled, Strategic Thinking, Key to Success. No one will ever be world-class without thinking strategically. In this presentation, strategic thinking is defined and discussed. Blocks to strategic thinking are identified, such as the worship of money. Case studies are used to contrast non-strategic and strategic thinking. The highest level of strategic thinking is alignment with the plans and purposes of God. All right, let's set the context for what I'm going to share with you. Strategic thinking is your key to success. And we're going to define some terms, first of all. Next thing we're going to do is we're going to give you a case study. We're going to look at what non-strategic looks like. Okay? Have any of y'all been in a business that you could say, this is not strategic? We're going to look at that. I'm going to show you a case study. Then we're going to talk about blocks to strategic thinking and success. And finally, we're going to talk about what it looks like to use biblical worldview and biblical thinking to solve a very common business problem. And then we're going to give you some takeaways at the end. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to blow through this, so I apologize in advance because some of this is going to go by real quick. Let's do some definitions. Strategic thinking is your key to success begs the question, what is success? What is success? That is a very important question to ask. Consider, for example, a company or an organization with the following characteristics. Clearly defined purpose. Unified leadership and teamwork. Excellent communications. Appropriate technology. Sound like a pretty good company? Does that sound pretty good to you? Would you expect this company to be successful? How many of you work for a company like this? Does anybody? we got one. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. Is that it? Seven out of a hundred and something people work for a company that you could say. So I assume the rest of you, your companies don't look like this. Is that what you're telling me? Okay. So you would expect something like this would be successful, right? Okay. You know what this was? These were characteristics of the Tower of Babel project. You know that? Purpose. Make a name for themselves. You're taking a deep breath. So, <gasps> is it stunning? Huh? Does that surprise you? You realize they did have a level of success. Okay? They got started. They were building this thing. And the only way you build anything at all is following at least some of God's principles. Nobody can build anything, I don't care who you are, without following God's principles. Now, what you want to do if you want real success, that is enduring, lasting success, is you want to follow as many of his principles as possible. What they did is they followed a few. Purpose, unified leadership and teamwork, they had that. They were excellent communications. They had appropriate technology. They found a level plane. They used brick instead of stone. Do you understand why they used that? If you're going to build something straight up, real tall, it's real hard to use irregular shaped stones. You need regular shaped brick. They had to develop technology to facilitate what they were going to do. They had to learn about the plumb line. They had to develop that technology. So they studied God's general revelation and discerned how to do this, which is what we're all supposed to do. Now, I guess everybody understands why we're here. Does everybody know why we're here? Okay. It's not the Great Commission. It's not the answer. I know most people think that's the answer. That's not the answer. You go back to Genesis 1, it tells us why we're here. We're here to rule God's creation. That's what it says. 
You don't like what I said? You look at the Bible. That's what Genesis 1, 26-28 says. It says, God at a conference, he said, let us. This was a mutual agreement in the context of the community of the Trinity. It said, let us make man in our image and let him rule. Rule this creation that we have made, that we have called very good. That's why man is here. Now, why do organizations exist? Organizations exist for one purpose, and that is to help us rule. They're tools to help us rule. And they're necessary tools because the way God has made man is he hasn't given us all the gifts. Mike here has certain gifts. Okay, Jan has certain gifts. Emily has certain gifts. And it's by putting them all together in community, as Norm was talking about, that the power comes forth. And that's how we rule in community. So what these people did is they practiced a lot of biblical principles and they had a level of success. That's why today you can look out there and say, well, gee, there's, there's this pagan organization over here and that pagan organization. Look at that. They're making all this money and they're growing and da-da-da-da-da. Well, guess what? They are following to some degree biblical principles. That's what they did here. The project, though, was doomed. It was doomed because they did not fully reflect God. They only partially reflected God, and God will not give enduring favor and success to self-glorification. And that's what that was all about. I want to talk about, if we're going to have definitions, we've got to have a, a resource, a source of definitions, don't we? Now, how many of y'all have gone to business school? When you went to business school, did you study from this book right here? This is the Handbook of Organizational Excellence and Prosperity. Did any of you study from that? Anybody remember that handbook? It's got all the answers in it. Okay, It's the business handbook everybody needs. Nobody seen this before? It's written by the creator of the universe. Does that help you? This is the handbook for life, including business. You know what our problem is? Our problem is we have a hermeneutic issue. We have an anti-marketplace hermeneutic. Sound like a disease, doesn't it? An anti-marketplace hermeneutic. Now, you know what that is? When you read the Bible and you read, walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh, my brain says that applies to me personally and it applies in my family and my church. But it does not apply in the marketplace or civil government. See, we do that. We don't even think about that. But that's what we do. And that's why we don't study this handbook. We go to business school and we get business books. Right? We got to find out what Drucker has to say and what Jim Collins has to say. The reality is the only thing they have to say that's of merit is whatever lines up with this. So this is our handbook. I wanted to make that very clear. If you don't look at the Bible as your handbook for business, then you are going to have a difficult time in life because you're not going to be looking at root issues properly. You're not going to really be able to solve problems. You will put band-aids on problems, and you will build, at best, a Tower of Babel. You will not be able to move beyond that. The highest level of success is alignment with God. Only his purpose will succeed. Do you believe that? Only his purpose will succeed. In him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Now, we know that doesn't apply in business, right? 
No, it doesn't. No, that's, hey, that's a different world. That's talking about personal life and church, you know, spiritual life. We would not think that God will work out things in the business. I mean, the business world's kind of nasty, isn't it? It's about money. And God doesn't care about money. And he doesn't care about organizations. And I mean, that's just, you know, how many of you work in kind of a nasty environment? You know? I mean, you don't enjoy it. It's oppressive. You know, you got to deal with problems all the time and, and customers that mistreat you and employees that don't show up and a manager that's gruff and mean and no sensitivity and there's no place to grow. I'm stuck. I mean, does that describe something for you guys? Does anybody relate to that? Can we believe that God has a purpose in that? Can we really believe that? Can we take that faith that Michael talked about and say, you know, I don't understand where I am, but I know God has a purpose. And he works everything out for his purpose, and guess what? It's good. Look at this one. There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. His plan and purpose is the only one that will win in the end. Now, you say, what about Hitler? You know, well, Hitler's a pretty bad guy and did a lot of bad things, killed a lot of people. But you know something? He got judged. And through that, God gave us somebody like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who took discipleship to another level. Okay? That's what God does with difficult things. Well, take Jesus. Now, when he died on the cross, who was there with him? Virtually no one. All of his disciples were where? They gone because Jesus failed. That was their perspective. It didn't happen. They became disillusioned. You know what disillusionment is? It's when your picture of reality doesn't happen. That's a disillusionment. What happened is they got disillusioned and they're out of there. In reality, God was doing the greatest thing in the history of the universe, and they didn't have eyes to see it. There's no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. So if we really get it that he's good and doing good things in the midst of bad things, we can begin to see reality. You understand? They did not see reality when he died. Does everybody get that? The reality was an incredible thing was happening. The most fundamental blessing of the universe was happening, the greatest blessing of the universe, and they didn't see it. They didn't see it. Lord, give us the grace to see it, and you can only see it when you see it from God's perspective. Many other plans in man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. You see somebody with an illicit purpose, it will not prevail. It will not endure. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Even seemingly random events are ordained by God. Can we get that? When my daughters were young and they had a conflict, I knew this verse. So I said, okay, girls, I don't know which way to go. Well, flip a coin. Now, this sounded like a random thing, right? No, it's not random. Even what looks random to us, God is into. He's ordaining the events of life. Okay, let's talk about what strategic is. Dictionary definition of strategic is a carefully devised plan of action to achieve a goal or the art of developing or carrying out such a plan. That's what strategic is. Now, let me give you four key elements of strategic, and if you attend one of my seminars, you cannot leave the room unless you can give me these four elements, and I'm going to impose that on you. You can't leave this room unless you can give me these four elements. This is the essence of being strategic. 
Number one is you have to have a vision. Without vision, my people perish. If you have no vision for where you're going, you are lost. You must have vision. Secondly, you have to understand reality. You have to have an accurate assessment of where you are. Thirdly, you have to have goals. Now, goals have three key ingredients. Number one is they are measurable. You've got to be able to say yes or no, I did it. Two, you've got to have accountability. Without accountability, you're probably not going to do it. And three, there has to be a deadline. If you don't have a deadline, you're probably not going to do it. The fourth one is accountability. Vision, current assessment or reality, goals, and accountability. Those are the four elements that you have to have in being strategic. Now, where do you think being strategic breaks down? Where does it break down? Usually at the accountability level. Because you can go into a planning meeting and you can have a vision. And you can have a pretty good assessment of where you are. You can set some goals. That's kind of fun, you know? Anybody ever done that in a meeting? It's kind of fun, isn't it? Then you got to go leave the room and go do it. The execution is where it breaks down. God is the master strategist. Now, that is a big statement. He has a plan and a purpose for the universe. And guess what? He's made us to be part of his plan. We are not random accidents of nature. Everybody here has a plan and purpose. Now, here's the problem with what I just said. If you are typical of the audiences that I speak to, most of you don't really believe that. Okay? And the reason you don't believe it is because you've got something going on inside of you. Some hurt, some pain, some unforgiveness, wrong perspective. There's something going on inside of you that's not allowing you to receive this truth, that you count. You go into the mode of, oh, who am I? I'm a nothing. I'm not Dennis Peacock. You know, look at Dennis Peacock. He's this great guy, and he influences all these people, and everybody looks up to him, and he, gosh, he knows so much, and I'll never know as much as he does. I mean, he's surely an instrument of God, and I'm a nothing. That's what we say to ourselves, if we're really honest. Okay, but we won't be honest because we wouldn't want to admit our deficiencies. But the reality is, until we get it, that we really, really get it, that we count, we're going to be blocked. We're going to be seriously blocked, and which means God is going to continually give us invitations. Do you know how he gives us invitations? It's called circumstances. Dennis likes to call it the training room. You get to train. You get to practice. He's continually offering us the opportunity to see ourselves as he sees us, fearfully and wonderfully made. As Norm said, people that God has created before the foundation of the world for good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians 2.10 applies to you, and it applies to you wherever you work. So now I go, all right, all right, let me get my anti-marketplace hermeneutic and get it off, get it over here, so I can, okay, all right, I'm going to try to get that Ephesians 2.10. I'm really working on getting that. It's hard. It's hard for all of us. Let's talk about the elements of God's master plan. Now, he hasn't told us a whole lot. And I assume all of you know that God works on a need-to-know basis. Y'all know that? I mean, several places that shows up in the end of John, it shows up, the first of Acts, it shows up. The apostles say, Lord, is now the time for you to restore your kingdom. 
He says, don't worry about it. You don't need to know. Here's what you need to know. And he tells them what they need to know. It's a great principle. That's one of the reasons that we know, for example, that parents have unique insight into children, because they need that insight. They have been charged to steward those children by God, and so God will give you as a parent unique insight into your children that nobody else will have. Your boss, whoever the boss is, they're not there by accident. And even if they're walking in a lot of sin, God has put something in them, and there's something for you to learn from them. So always be looking for what it is that God is saying. I'll never forget the time I was a Boy Scout, and we were out in West Texas, out in the country, and we were on a, was a Saturday activity where you went through a series of events, you going from one thing to another, you know, pitching a tent and making a fire, you know, building something, digging a latrine or whatever, you know, just a whole series of events, and these are timed events, and you, you go from one to the other, and of course, at the end of the day, whoever did the best job in the shortest amount of time wins. So we're trudging along, I'm a patrol leader, and we're jogging down this road, and we go into the next event, and and we see this truck over the side of the road, and the hood's up. And we go flying by the truck. We're not paying any attention to the truck. And as we went by, I noticed there's nothing holding the hood up. It's just hanging there. So I said, hey, guys, wait a minute. I turned around looked at it and said, hey, this is dangerous. You go find about a four-foot piece of wood there, you know, and then we trimmed the wood up. We got it the right length. We put it on there and say, sir, can we, we'll put this stick underneath your hood to, to keep it from falling on you. This is a dangerous scenario. And he said, well, thank you, young man. I appreciate that. So we did that, and then we took off. And we knew that cost us time. And we thought, well, you know, that may have cost, we may lose because of that. But we did it anyway. So then we finished all the, the circuit, and we got through, and went and took a shower, and took eat dinner, and then we went to the campfire. And so now they're giving out the awards. So as they give out the awards, you know, they start, you know, start at the bottom, work their way up, and, you know, we're waiting and waiting and thinking, well, gee whiz, we've done better than we thought, you know. Finally, it comes down to the, the last two, us and another patrol, and we won. And I'm saying, wow, didn't they beat us? They said, yeah, they did it in faster time. I said, well, how did we win? He said, because you saw the truck. The truck was part of the course, and he didn't tell us. We were the only patrol that saw the problem with the truck, and we stopped, and we solved this problem. So we won. I mean, that has just been indelibly imprinted in me of how I need to be aware of what's going on. The radar needs to be on. If I'm just taking a beeline for the next event, I'm probably going to miss an assignment, I miss an opportunity to help someone, miss an opportunity to learn a lesson. So we've got to see the big picture, but also we've got to be aware of what's around us and what God may have us engage in. Okay, the first element of the big picture was we have creation. We have a an immaterial God, a spirit being, creates a material universe. Now, somebody explain that. How does that work? I don't begin to understand how that works, but that's what he did. And then he gives us this divine mandate to rule it. And he makes us in his image. In other words, part of what's in him, he gives to us. He doesn't give it to animals. He doesn't give it to plants. He gives it only to human beings. So that's the first element of his big plan. We're here to rule his physical universe. We talk about taking dominion. Well, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to multiply and subdue his creation. Ultimately, everything that's involved in research, 
and the advancement of human knowledge is tied back to Genesis chapter 1. It's all fulfilling the divine mandate. All these books that are back there, those books are about fulfilling the divine mandate. They should be helping us understand God and how God works. That's all it is. And what we do with books, hopefully you find somebody that's gifted in an area, let them articulate something that God has given them insight in, and bingo, we have some new understanding of what God is doing. Y'all see, that's what books are about. It's not about my opinion or Joe's opinion or Dennis's opinion. Those really don't matter. What matters is, has God given us something that's valuable to you? If he has, we're trying to give it to you the best we can. As frail as it may be, as poorly as we may communicate it, we're trying to give you whatever we've got. And guess what? You need to do the same thing. Now, it doesn't mean you have to write a book, but it means you need to be in the practice of giving away what God has given you. That's how we subdue. We are continually giving away. Another way to look at this is generational transfer. Who of you decided when you would be born? Where you would live? I didn't decide to be born in Texas. I'm proud that I was, but... I didn't decide that. I didn't decide who my parents would be. I didn't decide whether I was male or female. I didn't decide the fact that my barber's quickly losing a job. Do y'all know that? I told him, you better hurry. And he told me, he said, I'm going to have to charge you a finder's fee. But that, that's cruel and unusual, isn't it? So anyway, we're all here by God's sovereign design. You are who you're supposed to be, when you're supposed to be, to do what you're supposed to do. God is very intentional. He is very strategic. Now what came along in Genesis chapter 3, and somewhat talked about in Ezekiel, is sin. And sin hit not only the physical world, but it hit the spirit world. Because we have Satan and his powers, his forces. So that's another issue in this grand scheme, because now what God is doing is redeeming his creation. And that's largely what the Bible is about. And as we go along and we read the Bible, what we get to do is discern more of the character and nature of God. Isn't that wonderful? You know, God gave us, in Genesis chapter 1, he gave us revelation. It's called creation. He says, go out there and subdue it. And that's what what you have in the early days. That's all they had. And you see, they did a pretty good job. I mean, you built an ark that sustained a 40-day flood. That's takes some subduing to figure out how to do that. He built this tower. I don't know how tall it got, but it obviously got tall enough to where it was somewhat significant. That took some technology, some understanding, some thinking, some study of God's general revelation to understand how to do that. But now we have special revelation, which is the handbook of life, which tells us specifically what God is doing to redeem man. And finally, we have a play going on. Did you know we have a play? And guess what? You are actors in the play. And the play is told, we have a hint of the play in Ephesians 3. It says that we are manifesting the wisdom of God to the principalities and powers of the universe. That's what it says. You can go read it, Ephesians 3. There is a grand play that we all have a role to play, and we are being watched by these principalities and powers. And God is communicating to them through us a message. And it's the message of who he is and what he's about. And finally, Revelation 21, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and everything's going to be brought under the submission of Jesus Christ. There's going to be the unity that Norm talked about in its fullest expression in the end. 
So this is kind of a big picture of what God's doing, and guess what? We all have a role to play in the game. The question is, are we going to get in the game or not? Now, money is the enemy's head fake, and it's, it's a great head fake. I mean, I played football, I, and I played against some people that could really make you grab air. I mean, they give you that number, and you go like this, and they're over there. How did they do that? Well, they do it because they're gifted to do it. Well, that's what money does. Money makes you grab air because there is nothing to money. Money is just a deception. It's deceit. And here's the way it's deceitful. Since God created everything, he owns everything. Therefore, there's never a shortage of assets to do what he wants to do. How many of you have money problems? Come on, be honest. You've got money problems. Okay. Can I suggest to you, you do not have money problems? Because your father has all the assets in the universe. And if he needs something, he'll create it. It's not a problem. What we perceive as money problems are symptoms of something else. And when we see money as the root issue, and we begin to chase money, we've been suckered into the head fake. Righteousness and wisdom trump money. Just look at this. Wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. How many will give everything for wisdom? That's a toughie. You know, particularly when we have a scarcity mentality, when, hey, gee, it looks, look how hard it was to get to here. If I give it away, I mean, my goodness, I won't have anything, and I'm getting old, and I'll be a bad person. I mean, we think that way, don't we? Because we don't really believe that God is good. We don't really believe that God will take care of us, and we don't really believe that money's the enemy's head fake because we worship mammon. I'm telling you, I have been in dozens and dozens and dozens of companies. I see it in every organization, the bow and the need of money. I mean, I am dying to go into an organization that bows to need to the living God because that will be a very, very different organization. Ill-gotten treasures are of no value, but righteousness delivers from death. A kind-hearted woman gains respect, but ruthless men gain only wealth. Does that not put it in perspective? A kind-hearted woman gains respect. If there's anything I learned from my dad is the value of your reputation. You cannot buy a reputation. You earn a reputation by treating people right. If, you, if my dad were here today talking to you and you were to ask him about business, the key to business, this is where he would start. You treat people right and you build a good reputation. That's how you build a great organization of any type. I don't care what it is. You have got to build it based on the intangible of respect. A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. How many of you would trade everything you had to be esteemed? See, nobody would. Nobody raised their hand. See? To prove what I'm saying. This is a hard deal. I mean, I feel for Earl. He's got a hard ground to plow because this mammon thing is huge. It's got us in a death grip. And to let it go, man, it's going to take hand grenades and dynamite, nitroglycerin, a nuclear bomb, because we don't want to let it go. We don't really believe that God will take care of us if we walk by faith. Don't really believe it. Strategic thinking is not this. It's not ready, fire, aim. How many of you know what that is? Ready, fire, aim? I have a, a gun license in Texas, and I'm kind of like Indiana Jones in that movie, The Raiders Lost Ark. 
when that guy comes up with his stuff. And he says, I don't have time for this. Bam, shoots him. You come at me with that kung fu stuff. That's it. Every four years to keep your gun license, you have to go and demonstrate that you can shoot. About two weeks ago, I am at the range doing my, my course, and there's about six of us on the range, and what you do is you have to you get in this position here with your gun. You can't do this until they tell you to. You know, basically ready, ready. They don't give you ready, aim, fire. It's ready, fire, and you have to raise up and aim and fire. So I'm doing this, and you've got you to fire 50 rounds, so, and the target is the silhouette of a person, if this is any consolation to you. And this is the, the bullseye right here. So, you know, I'm firing away and everything. After anyway, we're reloading. I happen to look down the range just to see how everybody's doing. And, and I was looking at this one target, and there are bullets everywhere, you know. And I could tell the instructor was trying to work with this particular person and explaining to them, you know, it has to be ready, aim, fire. Not ready, fire, aim. <laughs> so strategic thinking is ready, aim, fire. So what does it look like? What is ready? Ready is number one. Envision God's plan for yourself and your organization. Remember, there are four elements to being strategic. Envision is one of them. Okay. The second element here of the ready is the assessment of your current situation. So that's how you get ready. You know where you're going, and you know where you are. You remember when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees in John 8, and they were fussing at him. He said, you can't testify about yourself. And he said, yes, I can. And you know why? He says, because I know where I've come from, and where I'm going. He's saying, I have vision, and I understand reality today. Okay, This man was strategic. So here we go. We're ready. you got to envision. you got to assess. Secondly, you got to aim. And the way you aim is you set goals to bring change into your life. You know, if you don't have goals, guess what? You're probably not going to change very much. You know, one of the things that I do, just as a personal habit, is every day... I am reading the handbook. And I go through the Old Testament once a year and the New Testament twice a year. I have a regular reading program, and I read the Proverbs every month. Now, you know why I read the Proverbs every month? It's perhaps the most practical book of the Bible. It is full of wisdom. I don't know if you've noticed how many Proverbs I've had up here. There's no mistake. You know, The Proverbs are just chock full of reality. So I read that every month. So that's my discipline and what I find happening is it's putting the Word of God into me. Over and over again, putting the Word of God into me. That's a discipline. So I'm looking for that to bring transformation into my life. So we've got to have goals to bring change. We've got to fire. We have to execute with skill. We have to submit to authority. That terrible word, submit. And I submit to you that we don't do that very well. But my observation, both in working with companies and with churches and nonprofits is that we don't have a clue what community is. We're friendly and nice and we do things together, but we don't make decisions together. That's the real test. Can I take a problem I've got to solve and can I take it to the community, to a group of advisors who can give me godly wisdom on it? Can I do that? I should be able to do it. I should be doing it. But most of the time I'm thinking, I know. I see what to do here. I don't need any help. And that's a very common perspective I see in every company I go into. Finally, strategic thinking is alignment. That is alignment with God because strategic thinking is seeing and thinking like God. Strategic thinking is seeing and thinking like God. Now, the reason that is significant is because only God's purpose will prevail 
Therefore, anything that I do, if it's going to last, it's got to line up with God. And I've got to think and act like God. Wish we could spend a day on that, because that I mean, we could just explore the daylights out of that right there. Okay, seeing and thinking like God, we've got to realize God's got this plan for the universe going, in which you have a part to play. God has a plan for your organization. Your organization exists for a reason. How many of you know why God created your organization? Does anybody know why God created your organization? We have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, maybe. Out of 100 people, we got, we got 8%. We got less than 10% of you know why God created your organization. Does that say something? Well, we're back to this anti-marketplace hermeneutic again. You know, what's God got to do with my business? I'm just a contractor. You know, I just go out there and do work. You know, make money and create jobs. It's important we create jobs. I mean, politicians tell me that's important, create jobs. You know, does anybody hear anybody saying, what is it that God wants to do with this company? Why did he create it? Did you know it's a real interesting study to go back and look at the foundations of our, the best organizations we have today. You know what you'll discover? You're going to find godly men who heard the Holy Spirit, and set about doing something that they were led by God to do. And what happens over the years, because most of them didn't practice generational transfer well, is they got lost along the way because the people that took them over did not pick up the vision of the founder. And that's why our organizations don't last very long. We've got to realize that God has a plan for your organization. God has a plan for you. You are no mistake and no accident. The key is the integration of these plans. So that our personal life, our business life, is all lining up with God's plan and purpose for the universe. Now, is that too cosmic? We want to get into a practical here. This is a case study of a company that is one of my clients, and it's a case study of non-strategic thinking. Now, I got a call about 10 years ago. I was minding my own business. I really didn't want this call, but I got this call. And the guy on the other end says, uh, so-and-so referred me to you. He says, I have a problem. I said, yes, okay, what's your problem? He says, I'm nearly broke. I said, that sounds like a problem. So I went over. It was a kind of a snowy, icy day, and which I'm not excited about driving on those days, but I felt like I was supposed to go. So I went over there, walked in, and first thing I said, okay, tell me about your business. Let me see your financial statements. So I look at this financial statement, and I, and I look at the balance sheet. All of you know what a balance sheet is, I'm assuming. First thing I'm looking at is the equity. Okay, the equity said minus a million dollars. Now, I've learned over the years that's usually a lie. It is worse than that. They haven't been totally honest with you. So I know it's at least a million dollars upside down. Okay, so I said, this is quite interesting. It means you've got a lot of people you owe money to. He says, yes, the list is long. So I began to put together a plan. And it took me about three weeks, put it together. And by the way, in those scenarios, you get paid up front. Just, just a little tip, a little consulting tip. So got the plan to him, looks at the plan, and says, uh, thank you very much. I don't think I'm going to do this. I said, okay, see you later. Six months later, I get a call from him. He says, this is so-and-so. I need to repent. I said, okay. So here I go back over this summertime this time, so it's not icy. And go in the door, I said, show me your financial statements, tell me what's going on. Now, we are at negative a million two. 
said, okay, we're at least a million or two upside down. So he's saying, you know, I'm getting pretty desperate. I got people just chomping at me to pay them, et cetera, et cetera. So we put together a new plan. And of course, you know, the problem is it's the stinking thinking of the owner that got him there. So I am giving them stuff they don't want to do. So anyway, this time, though, he says, okay, we're going to do it. So we did get him turned around. But in the meantime, here's what we discovered. The basic failure of this company was idolatry. The balance sheet was a symptom of the idolatry, the worship of money. The way this was manifested, the symptoms were this. First of all, there was no market focus. This is a company, they're in the pavement repair business. And those of you that are in construction will probably track with this better than those that are not. They were doing several different types of business. They were doing public work, which had to be bonded, which meant you had a lot of paperwork. And these took usually 60 to 90 days to get paid. So it's very slow pay. So it takes a lot of capital to finance that kind of work. Then they were doing just regular commercial work with general contractors. And those of you that have worked with general contractors know they can sometimes be very problematic to deal with and take a long time to pay. Plus, they can back charge like crazy. I can try and think of some way to politely to say this. And they're difficult. What can I say? They're difficult. Then you've got just regular service work. And that's usually, you know, get it done, get it quick, not much paperwork, you know, it's just speed. And then you've got the little ding-a-ling stuff that happens every day. You know, fix this pothole, go over here and fix this curb, that kind of stuff, stripe this parking lot. So you've got all these different kinds of businesses all working at different paces, requiring different levels of management skill, different levels of paperwork. As, then do you get it that that's kind of difficult? You know? It's difficult to have a real smooth operation with all those different kinds of things going on. So what I did is I went in there and figured out where they made money. How many of you know where you make money? Okay, a few of you know where you make money. I suspect most of you don't know where you make money. You think you know because somebody told you you can make money over there or you just kind of have an intuitive feel, but nobody's ever validated it. Okay, what reminds me of what happened when I was in the mechanical business, my daddy taught me how to to estimate sheet metal work. And what you did, when you came up to a fitting, you took it off twice. So you counted it twice, and that's why you had plenty of material and you doubled the labor. And everybody thought, hey, that was it. That would cover it. That was the common knowledge of the day. And then in the early 80s, we bought an IBM computer. We bought this IBM computer that really had some nice features to it, and we bought a program that we could automate our sheet metal shop. So we automated the shop, which means we suddenly had cost data on what it really costs to build this ductwork. And you know what we discovered about fittings? We discovered that our thinking was wrong. The reality was it took ten times the labor to make a fitting, not twice. We were way off, way off. So now we took that into our estimating, and we began to, to get all these jobs that had a lot of what we called clean duct systems, which means not a lot of fittings. And we were the low bidder on just about every one. And all our competition thinks we're crazy. We're going broke. They don't realize we now understand our true cost. See? You've got to understand who you are, what you're about, and what it costs to do what you're doing. So they like market focus. They were doing all these different things scattered everywhere. So I figure out where they're making money, and I eliminate everything else. And, of course, the owner is just... And what's bothering him is he sees all that revenue going. He's focused on the revenue thinking that's going to equate to money. I said, your revenue has not equated to money because you don't have market focus. You don't know your niche. You don't know what God created this organization to do. So that's the first thing we did. The next thing we did 
is we looked at the team. Now, what happens when you're growing fast? You start hiring anybody, right? You need a body. One of the things that we learn from studying the Bible is that people are not fungible. You can't interchange people. Mike cannot be Dennis. Dennis cannot be Mike. By design. That's the way God made it. What you want to do when you have an opening in your company is you want to find God's person for that opening. So if you're growing a business so fast that you don't have time to find God's person, what you're doing is operating on a wrong principle. You're operating on an assumption of fungibility, which is not reality, and when you operate on unreality, you're going to walk into a pit. And that's what he did. He walked into this pit. So the next thing I had to do was figure out who's supposed to be there and who's not supposed to be there. And the fun thing I had, had to do was figure out, do we have a job cost system to tell us what's really going on? Can we really believe the numbers? And does it surprise you to know in situations like this you can seldom believe the numbers? Because they haven't taken the time to really put the feedback systems in place. So the result of all this was an, a negative net worth of over, that bracket sign is negative, just to be sure. Everybody understand that's negative? Negative million dollars. Okay. Now, what I want to do is use that story, that illustration. I want to illustrate for you five blocks. And these are not the only ones. These are just five blocks that will keep you from thinking strategically and acting and functioning strategically. The first one is business deism. Now, I use that. I could use partial dualism here. You all know what partial dualism is. I'm sure all of you read my book and you know what partial dualism is. Partial dualism is when you say God is relevant to me personally, to my family and my church, and that's it. He's not relevant to business or community government, okay, or any kind of government. Okay, that's partial dualism. Now, well, I've, I've labeled it deism for a reason. You know what a deist is? A deist is somebody that believes in God, but doesn't believe that God is involved anymore. You know, it's like, well, God created the universe, and he set everything in place, and now it's hands off. Just whatever happens, happens. Now, what I run into in the marketplace is a lot of business deists. You know, have y'all ever gone to any of these the websites and just start looking at companies? And, for example, look at their value statement. Just about every major company now has a value statement. You know that? You just start reading some of these value statements. You know what? They all say the same thing. They articulate biblical reality. Wow. You want to be honest and fair, treat people right. And also they say, expect everybody to do it. Doesn't sound very humanistic, does it? It's kind of an irony. You know, the companies, the people that run the companies have figured out you've got to have absolutes. A lot of people that work in the companies are humanists. You know, they haven't figured out that their humanism is not working in the context of the company. That's reality. You know, humanism doesn't work. When you take humanism and try to put it in a corporate structure, you have chaos, disaster. So what I see typically in organizations is a recognition that God exists, and many times that the ethics and values that's, that we have somewhat connect to God, kind of, sort of, but not really too much. So there's a separation here. We're only going to let God in so far. So I've kind of labeled that just for my own self, business deism. And business deism is a disaster. Business deism is a corollary of dualism that asserts that God does not bother himself with the affairs of business. If you take that on, you just threw out the handbook. You no longer have the handbook. Now you're left with Drucker and Jim Collins, which they have some good things to say, but you always have to measure them by the handbook. We taught good to great at church here about two or three years ago. We took all nine principles, 
was it nine or eight? I forgot, eight or nine, nine principles. We took every one of them and tied them to Scripture, and it was easy. Why was it easy? Because what he did is tried to observe what are the key drivers to take a good company to a great company, came up with these nine principles, and they can be nothing else but Scripture because that's the only thing that works. Pragmatically, long-term, that's the only thing that works. And they said, well, wait a minute, I know some real wicked people that are making money temporarily. Okay? It will not endure. Remember Babel? That was very temporary. You will not endure doing unrighteousness in any organization. Whatever you do, work at it with your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. If you don't believe the Bible is your handbook, you won't believe that verse. And you won't practice that verse. Now, what I had with my client was a company that was not driven by excellence, but was driven by money. And his whole thinking was, I want to get every job I can possibly get because that means money for me. So that's number one block is business deism, separating out the scripture from your thinking so that you begin to chase mammon. Okay, block number two is unreality. God alone defines and dwells in reality. Everything else is lies, deception, and confusion. Left to ourselves, we would create an unreal world. Who knows what's in Exodus 32? The golden calf. Where's this guy Moses? He's gone. You know, he was here and now he's gone. We're going to create a reality for ourselves. So we create this calf. We do that. Now, take off your helmet. The anti-marketplace hermeneutic. Take it off. That principle, what happened to them, happens to you. Happens to me. Happens in our businesses. It happens in our churches. Oops, did I say that? Shouldn't have said that. Churches, I mean, our churches are models, right? I'm an elder in my church, and so I pick on churches, okay? You know, this is something, I mean, I personally feel accountable for this. I think our churches should model what it looks like to walk with God in building organizations. That should be a primary objective of the church. I am praying and trying to work with my fellow church leaders to impart this reality and try to begin to walk in it. It's not an easy road. It's hard. Because we all got trained outside the book when it comes to the marketplace. When I went into business, nobody told me this was a handbook. I didn't know it. So where did I learn? I learned by watching and observing and seeing what other people did. Well, nobody else is following the handbook either. So I'm just learning worldly ways, which largely are driven by mammon, okay, or power, or influence, or sin. That's what I'm learning. And now I've got to reprogram myself. So until I get reprogrammed, I'm in unreality. I'm just like my client. You know, I'm being driven by something totally unscriptural. As a result, I'm winding up going in the hole. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Again, we don't believe that's true in business, but it is true. If we want to build a great organization, we start with a biblical worldview. I think that's another word for the fear of the Lord, a biblical worldview. The company owner was blinded by the worship of mammon, could not see reality. The third block is disobedience. The way God works is the predicate for new revelation or clear thinking is obedience to what's been revealed to you. The answer to the question of what do I do is what's in your hand to do? What understanding do you have? Go do that. What sphere of influence do you have? Go take dominion over that sphere of influence. 
You start with whatever you have. 1 Corinthians 7 gives us this principle when it's talking about slaves. He says of slaves, if you get saved and you're a slave, don't push the panic button to get free. Start right there, and if you have a chance to get free, get free. But start right there living for God, right where you are. So I don't care who you are, where you are. I was on a murder case one time, a jury, and we threw a man that had a jailhouse experience after he committed this crime. We put him away. And he said, well, gosh, how could you do that? I mean, the guy became a Christian in jail, and man, he's a brother now. Well, guess what? God's going to use him in jail. Who knows what that man did or what happened to him, but you know something? God is good, and he's working great things through bad situations. Our job is to be just. And if he is faithful to walk out what he learned, then you never know what incredible things he's going to do. We have got to learn to be obedient to what God gives us. Look at this verse. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold my teaching then you will, know that you will really be my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The reason I put that up there is because most of us don't understand the verse. What we think is, we think if you know the truth, the truth will set you free, and that's not what it says. You see what it says? It says there's a predicate. If you hold to my teaching, that's the predicate. Holding to Jesus' teaching is obeying his teaching. If you do that, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You see, you obey what you know, that opens the door for more truth. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. They had revelation. They did not obey. It blocked God's purpose in their life. If anyone turns a deaf ear to the law, even his prayers are detestable. This is a verse that I read on vacation about a year and a half ago. It took me to my knees. Literally took me to my knees. I said, wow. I had to take off my anti-marketplace hermeneutic. And what does that mean for the marketplace? What does it mean for my clients and organizations? They know truth. They're not practicing. And they are blocking communication with you. They're trying to run their businesses without communicating with you. That is a scary thought. The owner of my client knew the Bible. In fact, he was very involved in his church. But he did not obey its teaching. He was blocked. The fourth block is single-generational thinking. I'm going to have to hurry here because I want to get to the last case study. Single-generational thinking is this. We've got to get it. It's not about us. We are part of a chain. We were given inheritance. Our job is to steward and grow that inheritance and pass it on. That's what we're supposed to do. Okay? It's not about us. And until we can start thinking multi-generationally, we will continually be blocked in building long-term organizations. There are many men, very godly men, have built some good organizations, like James Cash Penny, for one. He built a great organization that lasted a long time, but he did not practice generational transfer well. So when he's gone, his vision is pretty well gone. Now the company doesn't really reflect him that much. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, we've got to get it. It all belongs to him. What do you have that you have not received? Has anybody got anything that God didn't give to you? You have nothing that hasn't been given to you. Then why do you boast as though you, you didn't receive it? I mean, that is such a profound statement that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians. We've got to get it. We are just stewards. The owner in this situation was all about money for himself, making money so he could join the country club, 
so he could take vacations every summer, so he could buy fancy cars and buy a big house and have a swimming pool in his backyard. That's what was driving him. That does not work. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having a nice house and a swimming pool in your backyard. That's fine. But I'm saying if that is your goal and objective, you are worshiping mammon. Okay, block number five is Christian rappers. I talked to you a little bit about this last year, so I'm not going to dwell on this long. Basically, a Christian rapper is when we are practicing ungodly attitudes and actions and we're wrapping them in a veneer of Christianese in some sort. For example, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. The religious leaders wrapped their rules in a Pharisee wrapper and were feeding that to the people. The company had a paid intercessor on its staff. Yeah. I start going down the payable list. You know, who's this, who's this, who's this, and who's this lady right here? Oh, that's our intercessor. Oh, really? You have an intercessor? Yeah, we have an intercessor to pray for us. And so what's this intercessor praying for? Well, that we would prosper. You expect God to prosper something that's not lined up with him? You think that an intercessor is going to counter that? Huh, it isn't going to work. I don't care how many intercessors you got. You don't line up with God, you don't win. And you can wrap it any way you want to wrap it. You know, the reality is that God requires alignment with him to bring forth success. If you want to succeed, find out what God wants you to do and do it to his glory. That's how you succeed. Strategic thinking is biblical thinking. Begin seeing the Bible as the handbook for all of life. Analyze situations from a biblical worldview. This is strategic thinking, your key to success. Now I'm going to give you one last case study. What I want to do is show you how to analyze a problem biblically. So let's take off our anti-marketplace hermeneutic hats, put them on the side here, and we're going to talk about an unhappy customer. And this happened to one of my clients who happens to be here. She is somewhere here. Where is she? Sharon? This lady in red back here. This happened to her about two months ago. She calls me up. Ding, ding, ding. I got a problem. That's usually my, how my phone calls start. I got a problem. Okay, so what's the problem? Well, here's the problem. She's got a pet setting company, and the holiday seasons are prime time for her. So she has a no-refund policy for the holiday season. So over Thanksgiving, she's got a customer whose plans changed unexpectedly, and the customer calls and cancels the service. Well, the customer knows that she's obligated to pay for the service even if she cancels. So she's reminded again. She said, yes, I know I owe. And so she decides to send in the check, and she sends it in with a threatening note. This is fun. You know, Sharon opens it up. She's got her check, and there's this little note. Dear Sharon, I love you, but if you cash this check, I will never do business with you again, period. Okay? That's a love note, isn't it? That's true love. Okay, so now you've got a real unhappy customer on your hand, and you don't know quite what to do, do you? So what Sharon does is she picks up the phone and she starts calling her friends. And she says, what should I do? Now, there's nothing particularly wrong with that if you're calling the right people. That's the key. You've got to call people that have a biblical worldview, that think biblically. So here's the answer she got. First answer she got was send the money back and stop doing business with a customer. Okay? Option two, behind door number two here, send half the money back and stop doing business with a customer. Okay, option three is don't send the money back. The company is entitled to it by contract. 
stop doing business with a customer. Those are the options she was given. So she comes to me with these options. She says, what should I do? Now, how did I respond to that? All the above? None of the above. Okay. Well, I agree. I said, I don't think you have good options here. So I said, let's think this through biblically. So here's what we did. So the first question we ask is, is your policy biblical? Isn't that a good question? Yeah, is this a really a, a good policy to have? Does this really bless the customer and bless your company? So what do you all think? Is it biblical? You think it is? We've got one yes. Two yeses and a bunch of grunts. Okay? Okay. Three yeses and a bunch of grunts. Okay. All right, here's my analysis. The company's policy came from a godly desire to properly steward the business. Every company owner needs to efficiently use his or her resources. Holidays are prime time for the pet sitting business. Canceled appointments significantly and negatively impact the business. By operating efficiently, the company can offer the very best value proposition to its customers. Hence, the cancellation policy blesses the customer by promoting service efficiency as well as promoting good stewardship of the business. In other words, by operating efficiently, I can offer you the service as cheaply as possible. So thinking from the big picture, the policy makes sense. It's a reasonable policy to serve her business. Okay, does everybody see that? All right, so now we're there. So what is the root issue of the conflict? We're okay, the policy is okay. So now what's the root issue? Now, where is all conflict rooted? Ultimately, it's rooted in unequal yoking. That is also in the book. What was going on here is you have a customer who is greedy because she is worshiping money. You have, you're dealing with idolatry here. You see, this business problem was a spiritual problem. But see, unless I have my anti-marketplace hermeneutic hat off, I don't see it that way. You know, I see it just as a business problem. It is a spiritual problem. The root issue is spiritual reality. So what we have here is a woman, a customer, who's greedy for money. The owner of the business was not being greedy. Sharon was not trying to be greedy. She was trying to operate and steward God's business. You understand you don't own your companies? How many of you think you own companies? There's a bunch of you who have stock certificates. I think we ought to turn them all in and change them and say stewardship certificate. That's what it ought to say. Because God owns the business that you steward. And you've got to think about what does God want me to do with his business? How does he want me to run it? Okay, so... Sharon is a very good steward. She's thinking biblically about a lot of things she's doing. So she was not being greedy. She was adopting that policy to facilitate the greater good, which means both the company was blessed and the consumer was blessed by virtue of having a lower cost value proposition. So now we have a situation where we realize and understand the real problem here is the greed on the part of the customer. Okay, so what do we do with that? What do we do with a greedy customer? We've uncovered the root reality here, and now we've got to deal with it. So how do you do that? Well, the first thing you do is humble yourself. It's good to pray about it, too. Humble yourself. Call the customer and very humbly and graciously thank the customer for clearly communicating her feelings. You see, it was very good of the customer to say, I'm mad. How many of you have had customers that didn't tell you they were unhappy with you? Yeah. Did they tell you in advance that they were unhappy with you or just show up one day? Little hint, huh? But was it clear or not? Okay, it became clear. 
Well, it's nice when a customer says, I'm not happy with you. Okay? So, the first thing I said, Sharon, call her up and tell her, thank you for sharing with me where you are. I appreciate knowing truth about where your feelings are. So that's how you start the conversation, humbly, graciously thanking the customer. The next thing is you invite the owner to understand your perspective. You hear that? You invite them. So you invite them to, as you explain it, say, would you put yourself in my position and give me your advice? What do you think I should do? This is the reason I have the policy. How do you feel about that if you were in my position? So she invited the customer to think from her perspective. Now, this is the critical point here, because you never know how this is going to react. Because you got basically one of two things are going to happen. Either the customer is not going to be able to see the viewpoint. Okay? If the customer is so focused on, and so driven by greed and so spiritually dead that she cannot see any other perspective but her own, you probably can't do much. The best thing you can do is politely you know, give her money back and decline doing any more business with her. Because you are unequally yoked and you're just going to have continuing conflict with this customer. Anybody experienced that? Where you had to fire a customer? Okay, it's okay to fire a customer. I mean, it's, it's revelation. You know, God sends you customers. Not every customer is a customer. You need to find out who are my customers. I think that way. Who are my clients? Just because somebody calls me doesn't make them a client. I've got to see if God has called me to serve that particular client. That's my question. All right, the other option here, the customer is able to see the owner's perspective, and then the customer would repent of their sin, and you would have won the customer back. Those are the two options there. You see, you're dealing with a business problem on the root reality of the spirit, which is where the real problem is. There was no way to know how the customer would respond, but success here, and this is very important, success is not the outcome, but the obedience. Being successful means that you're obedient. It did not matter how she responded on one level. Just being obedient itself was success. Success was honoring God by responding to the angry customer in a manner that glorified God, which is what she did. Now, how did it turn out? This one turned out, first of all, she followed my advice. Those of you that are consultants know that your advice doesn't always get followed. That's reality. You're called in, you give advice, and you have really no control unless the people willingly submit to you, and then you can hold them accountable. But you never know. But she did follow my advice, and here's what happened. The customer repented. The customer repented. Can you imagine that? I mean, you've got church going on here. Okay? The customer is repenting for her greed. Greatly appreciated the wisdom and sensitivity displayed by Sharon. Turned out to be a win-win, and God was glorified in the midst of business. That advanced the kingdom of God. You see that? Now, can I say, with all due respect to pastors, advancing the kingdom of God happens outside of missions and evangelism. I hear this all the time. There is this perspective that advancing the kingdom of God is about sending missionaries out. It is about that, but it's more than that. It's about Mike obeying God every day. It's about Sharon obeying God every day in their businesses or wherever they work. You don't have to own a business. Wherever you work, obeying God, taking dominion, and bringing the rule and reign of God into your sphere of influence as advancing the kingdom of God. That's what we're here to do. What she did 
is she found a brother that was caught in a sin, and she obeyed Galatians 6.1. You who are spiritual, restore them gently, but watch out yourself, or you may also be tempted. That's what she did. Isn't that beautiful? You can make a difference solving common business problems if you see them biblically and solve them biblically. Does that sink in? I mean, is that just, or just going flying by you? I mean, this is very practical. I'm not being conceptual here, guys. This has really happened. You see that? Strategic thinking was the key to success. Applying the biblical principles of problem-solving, stewardship, clear communication, humility, and the golden rule, and what you have is a win-win solution for the customer and the company. All right, here's your takeaways real quick. Strategic thinking is your key to success, and it's thinking like God thinks. That is strategic thinking. Only his plans win. Now, if you're going to walk in his reality, you've got to have a vision for where you fit in and where your organization fits in. So you have to have vision for the future. You have to understand current reality, and the only way you're going to understand current reality is to see it through a biblical lens. You know the triangle that you've seen the triangle? The best way I can solve any business problem is I look to God and say, God, how do I solve that problem? You go up before you go down. The goals that you set in your life are all about transformation, changing us so that we more and more walk in our biblical reality. And finally, we have to be accountable. How many of you have somebody that you are accountable to? Raise your hand if you have somebody that you're accountable to. If you don't, if you couldn't raise your hand honestly, I want to challenge you. Find somebody that has a biblical worldview that you can be accountable to. Recognize the blocks of strategic thinking, and we all have them. Number one is business deism. That's huge. Two is unreality. When we don't see through the handbook and through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we're not going to see reality. Three is disobedience. If we don't obey what we know, do not get overwhelmed. How many of you are feeling overwhelmed right now? Be honest. Okay, can I tell you it's okay? Okay, I know you feel like you're taking a drink, you know, out of a fire hydrant. It's just blowing all over you. But guess what? You are getting something out of this. You're getting it up here, and you're getting it in your spirit, in your heart. You're probably getting things here you're not even aware of. And that's good. What you want to do is you want to keep bathing and marinating in this truth. And this it goes on for years and years and years. And you will learn more and more and more, and you will change. And you'll wake up in five years or ten years, and you will look, and somebody will say, Gary, you're not the same guy. You know, you're different. Has anybody had that happen to him? Sharon Jones, the lady we just talked about, a year ago, she was not the same. She looks totally different today. She has been transformed, and she's just beginning. You can start today. Wherever you are, you can start and make a step forward. This conference is a step forward. And then you need to purposely, strategically line up everything in your life to continue to make steps forward to transforming your life and walking in biblical reality. You've got to start thinking multi-generationally. Who am I handing the ball off to? God hasn't given you what he's given you for you to die and not hand it off to somebody. You've got to hand it off to somebody. I'm always looking for somebody. Who can I give away what I've got? Who wants it? Those are key questions. You've got to keep asking those questions. And you've got to get rid of Christian rappers. 
We have, all of us have our Christian rappers. We can be language that we talk. We can have an intercessor on staff to try to justify our ungodly practices. Those are just Christian rappers. They don't work. What works is a changed heart. A rapper is a veneer. The heart is inside, and the reality is what's inside. It's not the rapper. Living strategically is thinking and acting like God in every situation. Success is obedience to and alignment with God. It is not getting a certain outcome. It's not putting money in the bank. It's not achieving certain power and influence. It is obedience to the living God who created you and destined you to do what you're doing. Jesus lived a little over 30 years and he died. But he did what God called him to do. Can we be content with that? Can I pray for us? Father, we thank you so much that you are the God of creation, that you are the living God who has communed with us, communicated with us your truth and reality through your word and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would illumine our hearts and minds today with new revelation, new insight. Lord, may we go deeper in our commitment to walk with you, to walk in your reality, to be your servants. Lord, help us to take off our anti-marketplace hermeneutic hat and to receive all of your truth in every jurisdiction and to walk it out. Teach us, Lord, that obedience is success. Teach us to line up everything we do strategically to accomplish your will. So, Lord, we want to commit ourselves to be your servant. Let it be. In Jesus' name, amen.